Hello and welcome to Bird and Birds Retail Therapy Podcast, where we explore the trends, changes and legal aspects of the retail industry. I'm Nicola Conway and I'm a Senior Associate in Bird and Bird's Retail and Consumer Team. And I'm Sana Malik, I'm a trainee at Bird and Bird. In today's episode, Retail Mergers and Aspirations, we're going to discuss and unpack notable M&A transactions and trends that transpired during 2023 and that we expect to see during the next year. We're joined here today by Nick O'Donnell, corporate partner at Bird & Bird, who is going to kindly share his expert insights and foresights here. Nick, please could we ask you to share a little bit about yourself and your practice with our audience? Thanks, Anna, and uh, thanks, Nicola, and thank you for having me onto your podcast today. So, yeah, I'm an M&A lawyer, and in terms of background, I started my career against the backdrop of the dot-com crisis, and that was really the first time we saw retail and tech coming together doing spectacularly well, then doing disastrously badly, and then picking up the pieces. And I think in some ways that's always informed the paths I've taken in my career. And I've always enjoyed doing deals in both retail and consumer and the tech space. And that's why I'm really looking forward to talking about uh, that with you both today. Thank you. Before we get started, we need to mention that this podcast is intended to be an open forum for conversation. It does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. If you do want any legal advice, just reach out to us or your usual Bird & Bird contact. We're always happy to support you and your business however we can. Let's get into this episode. So let's start by looking back at 2023. It already seems like some time ago now, but if memory serves me correctly, there were plenty of acquisitions in the retail and consumer sector last year, whilst a lot of other sectors saw a drop off in deals. What in your view differentiates the retail and consumer sectors and what do we think is driving deals in this space whilst they seem to be falling in others? Right, yes. I mean, last year, it wasn't quite bankers jumping off the roofs, but it was the worst year for M&A generally we'd seen since 2013. Deal values down something like 25%, deal volumes down something like 20%. But in the retail consumer space, being more optimistic as we can, as that's what we're talking about today, although you know it was a quiet-ish year, it, it wasn't the same sort of drop-off. And I think there are three things that come to mind that make this sector different than, than the market in general. Firstly, valuations. We haven't seen, in most cases, the really crazy valuations you get in tech. And where a seller and a buyer more or less agree what an asset or a brand is worth, it makes it a lot easier to get a deal done. Secondly, retail consumers really on the front line. So where you have the cost of living crisis, which we had, inflation, interest rates, and the rest of it, it was retail and consumer businesses often were the ones that suffered from that. So to take an example, the back end of last year, we saw um, Young's buy a bunch of, of a chain of pubs in, in and around London. And that's really a sector that you know, clearly has been struggling and that throws off companies that are out there looking to be bought. And the third one, I think, is because for the larger players in the sector, at least, they have multiple brands and that allows flexibility. So for example, that could be defensive diversification. So we've seen Next go out and buy him, by all accounts, still going to be buying brands. So they bought Fatface and Kath Kitson, but they bought the colors, yeah. And then equally, it could be a way of concentrating more on your core brands by making disposals. So we saw Unilever sell off 20 or so brands to private equity again at the back end of last year. So they sold off Timothée Shampoo, and that one with the cheesy advert, Impulse Body Spray, if you remember, remember that one. So lots of reasons why still plenty going on in, in retail consumer m and last year. 
I really didn't realise that the numbers across the board were, had dipped that much. To, what did you say, 20% less? Overall, yeah, the number of deals probably depends which numbers you, you want to pick, but somewhere between 16 and 22% of the numbers I've, I've seen, whereas sort of 25% in terms of overall deal value. Wow, that's a lot. That's really interesting, dear. Um, could you share some thoughts on any notable deals in the market that stood out to you last year? Yeah, I mean, the one everyone loves, loves talking about chocolate, don't they? That's always, I've never really done a, a, a pure chocolate deal, and I've always wanted to because it always gets the most publicity. Mm -hmm. But so I'll talk about chocolate now. So the Mars takeover of Hotel Chocolat that, that went through back end of last year, again, it got a lot of coverage in the press, as you might imagine. But the lead story was really about the price that was paid. So I think it was 200 and checking my notes, 280 million pounds they paid. And that was 170% premium to the undisturbed share price. Whereas normally on the takeover, the share premium is say between 10 and 30 or maybe 40%. So it looked like a massive price. And the story that, that went out was, oh, well, this is the problem with the London Stock Exchange it undervalues companies. Which, you know, I think is sort of the wrong take on it. And really, it's a retail consumer issue that was driving what was going on there. And what was happening was, to some extent, Mars were a little bit over the barrel and had to meet the price that was being asked for. Mars wanted, and to be very public about it, wanted to achieve premiumization of its, of its brands. And that makes sense in the chocolate space because the supply chains are so murky, for want of a better word, often that actually if you have very low margin, high volume products, it's hard to build into that the checks and balances you need in your supply chain. If you're moving to slightly higher margin products, like the Hotel Chocolat products, it's a bit easier to, to track it more carefully. And I think we'll see the continuation of that trend, not just in the chocolate industry, but in other areas where supply chains are difficult and moving to more premium products makes it a bit more affordable to, to a really track what's going on. Thank you, Nick. Um, and we're obviously here for anything chocolate related. <laughs> and looking into the next year, I'd love to hear more about what you think we can expect across the RNC industries as a whole, but also any individual subsectors that you anticipate might be particularly interesting to watch. So fashion, cosmetics, food and beverage or anything else you can think of? It's a big question, but I mean, I think we start with optimism. We'll, we'll see slightly busier market. The interest rates and inflation are coming down. So there's reason to expect more activity. I think something in interesting is around India. I mean, India has had a stonking year. The Indian economy is going, you know, gangbusters. And India Inc. is increasingly flexing its muscle, including in the retail and consumer space. Tata has been very public. It wants to be a consumer giant. I don't see really why it won't be within you know, another Unilever within a few years' time, and we'll see them coming and, and buying up more stuff. Private equity is sat also on an absolute mountain of money. They'll be out buying more. They, they seem to have unlimited appetite to go out and buy high street food chains, despite you know, a mixed track record in that area. We saw, which one was it? I think it was General Atlantic. They bought, uh, they put more money into Joe and the Juice recently, but that's just you know, one example out of tons on the high street. Online retailers, I think we, we're seeing, you know, they're slightly less attractive where it's only online. I was reading, actually, well, in preparation, to be honest, before this, for this chat, that 60% of the clothes sold in the UK is still sold in stores, not online. And I think investors are increasingly being a little bit cautious about is online only something of a gamble because you're really limiting the market in lots of, in lots of areas. 
Uh, and maybe the fourth one is is what we've been seeing for a long time: the continuation of the the, the value of kind of experiences in terms of hotels and hospitality. A couple of big hotels have opened up, you know, not that far from our offices here recently, and there's still plenty of money going into those areas. But to some extent, I mean, the M and A M and A folks are you know follow the money, follow the hot sectors. So maybe I'll ask you what your view would be as to you know what do you think is going to be a hot sector in terms of areas that are doing very well. So yes, definitely a big question. Um, I'll focus on maybe a little small part of it. In terms of consumer trends, particularly in the fashion and beauty industries, I think we're going to see the continued growth and popularity of certain products which are trending on TikTok. So I think the general influencer nature is here to stay. And if anything, we'll be getting stronger in the coming year now, especially more the fact that AI-based tools are being used for, you know, for content, for branding, even now for pictures, it just means that literally anyone can be an influencer and can affect change over consumers. I think following the pattern of self-care and wellness merged with health benefits, we saw an increase in hair care especially, and I think this is still gathering momentum. So after TikTok's obsession with Miel's rosemary oil for hair growth, I don't know if either of you have seen that, Miel is now part of Procter & Gamble's beauty group, and that is solely because of the amount of social media coverage and the boom it had in terms of the consumerism and its sales last year. I think we'll see more instances of coverage, collaboration and acquisitions just like this, which have been directly derived from social media movements, especially within cosmetics and fashion. What about you, Nicola? I think to your point, Nick, of follow the money, I think it's still going to be beauty brands. I know there's been a lot going on and a lot of people think the market's oversaturated and what on earth more could happen? How many more new brands can we have? How many more acquisitions can we have? But it doesn't seem to be slowing down. And one thing that I've been seeing in particular with the luxury beauty brands is this movement towards collaborating more with people in the sporting worlds. So we've got a lot of the high-end beauty brands working with brand ambassadors who are actually sporting people rather than more traditional celebrity type influencers and ambassadors. So I'm kind of overlapping a bit with what Sana's saying here, but I think more is gonna happen in the beauty space. I think there's a lot of money still to be made there. And I think those who are taking the opportunity to invest in the overlap between beauty and sport are gonna do very well. So sticking with the luxury sectors specifically, I was really interested in watching throughout 2023 that several brands were snapping up suppliers, and this is particularly the case in the fashion supply chains. So amongst various others, we saw Chanel acquire a majority stake in the Italian knitwear company Paima. We also saw the LVMH group acquire a majority stake in Henglong Italy, which is a tannery. It seems as though those supply chain acquisitions are intended to enable them to increase their speed to market, but also have greater control and greater margins, which it makes a lot of commercial sense. I guess my question is, should we expect to see more movement towards vertically integrated supply chains? Or do we think, given the persistent market challenges, we can expect more brands to kind of sit tight this year, weather the storm, keep their current supply chains as they are, and wait it out? Yeah, the first one. <laughs> we'll, we'll expect more just for exactly the reasons you, you say. I think the, the other example that I was thinking of was Golden Goose, who make these distressed trainers. I don't know if you've seen them. They're, 
I hadn't heard them to be honest before, but my, um, I have a cousin who, who knows about these things. So they're very, very in apparently with Taylor Swift and Selena Gomez. So they have this uh, superstar badge logo thing on the, the side if you've got $500. Anyway, um, when I looked into it, I, they realized I hadn't read about it because they're, they're rumored to be doing an IPO. And one of the things they've been doing in their build up to the IPO is buying their suppliers for just the reasons you, you say, you know, having that control reassuring investors that they have control. And I think that's the polarization we'll see. The companies that are doing very well, like Golden Goose and the companies, you know, you mentioned Chanel, LVMH, obviously very strong financial companies. You know, they'll be continuing to do that. On the other hand, companies that are struggling a little bit by, you know, acquisitions are expensive and they're hard to integrate and they come with complexity, they distract management. So if you're not feeling so confident, then the second of the two options you gave me, they'll be hunkering down and, and waiting for the markets generally to be a little bit more, you know, a little bit more positive. If we focus on beauty and cosmetics specifically, it seems as though last year was a relatively slower year for M&A deals in beauty. So Nick, do you see any rationale for this? And if so, do you think that will change in the next coming year? Yeah, it's interesting. We've talked a lot about beauty, haven't we? Because in some ways it's very busy, but in some ways, in terms of pure number of deals, there aren't millions of them. And I think the reason for that is because when you think about beauty brands, they're so tied up with the self-image of the consumer. So it's you know your scent or it's stuff you're putting on your face that when it works and it hits, it's a fantastic business to be in. And that makes it, from an M&A perspective, expensive because there's a real value attached, attached to that. And that just makes it that much harder to actually get those deals across the line because it's, you're suddenly writing very big checks. So the, the two that stood out in terms of the deals last year, so the one was owner of Gucci who bought Creed, the um, fragrance brand, which is a great brand. They paid, again, checking my notes, three and a half billion euros. Now, that's a lot of money for, you know, even, you know, it's a brand with a great heritage and so on, but it's still a big number. And then the other one was L'Oreal, who bought Aesop, the Aussie or originally Aussie soap maker. In fact, I've been to their store not long ago in um, Common Garden, around the corner, and it's a great space. But again, they paid $2.5 billion I've written down. And again, that's a, that's a big number. So I think it's when you start talking about the, the sort of multiples that are implied there, it does just make it a bit harder to get deals away. Yes, yeah, that makes sense. And kind of off the back of that, what could beauty brands then be doing to make themselves more attractive for investment? Could private equity houses be the key to securing more investment in that respect? Yeah, that's a good question. And it makes me think, I know you've got a queue of people waiting to come on to your podcast to, to talk about how to do these things. And it makes me think you should get some venture capital experts to come on and, and talk about that because there's such an army of consultants out there who, who will give advice as to how best to, to do this. I mean, the one view I would have is, yeah, I mean, certainly private equity and the, and the wider venture capital community is part of the, the answer there. But in terms of, of an approach, I think because there is a degree of skepticism around Actually, it's great when beauty brands work, but there's a lot of brands that just don't work, that you have to be really hard-nosed. Um, you don't want to be leading in the conversations talking about your passion for the brand. In this case, you want to be leading with the numbers. You want to be cold, dispassionate, hard-nosed, all of those things, and you want to know where every pound or dollar or euro in your business is and how much money you need exactly. That's what investors want to know. 
particularly in that space. That leads me on to something that's always, I've never really known the answer to. So let me take the opportunity to ask you the question that where you have brands, particularly maybe in the beauty space, but also equally in, in the fashion space, where they become owned by private equity, do you think consumers care about that, have an issue about that? They, do they know who the owners are? Does that affect the, the viability of the brand itself? Honestly, I don't think that consumers know or care about who owns the brands. I think they care about who uses the brands. So if we think of Hayley Bieber's brand, Road, I don't know if she owns that or not, but we all know that she uses it and it's enormously popular. I think the same could be said for House Labs, which Lady Gaga is the face of. I don't know if she has any ownership in that whatsoever, but we know she uses it and she talks about it. And I think that's what makes it attractive to at the consumer level rather than who holds the purse strings. That makes sense. What about a brand where you've actually got the founder's name in the name of the brand itself, but the founder no longer owns it? Do you think that's, again, it would be the same answer that it doesn't matter, it's about who uses it? I think so. I think if we think of Jo Malone, the fragrances, she's no longer involved in that brand at all. I think it's still enormously popular, although to be fair, that one's been around for quite a long time, so it's, it's earned its goodwill whilst she was at the helm. But I don't think so. I have to agree with Nicola on that point. And I think it's probably because we're seeing like a change in culture and demographic of who maybe a large part of consumers are now. So Gen Z is the newest, largest demographic coming in as a new consumer. And they are known to take issues like environment, CSR, ethical work practices really seriously, as well as kind of having this awareness of who the brand is maybe used by and celebrity endorsements and things like that. Probably what is something more of a make or break issue is perhaps kind of negative publicity or something unsavory coming to light in the news. And I think we saw that last year when various fast fashion brands were heavily criticized for environmental impact or lack of workers' rights. And there was like kind of an en masse boycotting of some fast fashion retailers. So I think these could be more kind of further obstacles as opposed to even an awareness of who's owning the brand. I think that's fair. I think just to tie a bow around that, I think we have the same view that consumer purchasing decisions are steered by a lot of things, but maybe who owns the brand is not one of the top five or 10 even. Right, right. Well, that's good news for private equity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Other than ownership and maybe we can give a broader view outside of the beauty industries specifically. What do we think makes an asset more or less attractive? Yeah, a lot of things. I think this may be the, you know, we're all lawyers here, so we're all sort of worrying a bit about risk and a bit conservative. But I think the one that stands out for buyers is, look, every brand has problems, but it's how they've reacted to that problems, particularly in terms of areas like the supply chain, product liability, greenwashing. So having that track record of reacting in the right way and being upfront about it, I think that's really helpful. Technology, everyone is terrified about the cost of technology. It's not necessarily that you have to have the greatest website, but the FD at the, whoever the buyer is, is going to want to not think they're going to have to buy this asset and suddenly chuck in 50 million pounds to fix the website. And maybe the third one is slightly more intangible, maybe more your area than mine, but I think in some ways, 
fitting in with the, the zeitgeist, but in a way that makes business sense. So, Sana, you were talking before a lot of, lot of things around sustainability and what consumers are interested in. And I think there can be a degree of caution in terms of that's great and clearly there's a market for that and it drives consumer behavior, but it has to make sense for the, for the brand. So let's take a sort of slightly different example, Abercrombie. So that, when I was young, right, that was a brand for people who were good looking or thought they were good looking, which, you know, it was slightly more egocentric, I think, then. And so that was a good place to be in because everyone kind of decided that they were an Abercrombie shopper. And it was fantastically successful. Then it slipped a little bit. There was a scandal. I can't quite remember the details we won't go into. But actually, in the last what year or, or so, it's now repositioned itself as being a kind of entry-level luxury goods brand, which at least in the US market today, that's a great place to be. And you can see how they've sort of ridden a, a wave and they've gone back to the people they were selling to 15, 20 years ago. They've got onto a slightly different trend and their sales are doing tremendously well. Now, I'm not saying that they are an acquisition target. I doubt, I doubt they are. But uh, it, it's a way of, I guess, trying to exemplify that you, you want to be following the trends, but in a way that you can see flow through to the bottom line. Looking internationally now, if China hits a slowdown, how would that affect the sector M&A market? Yeah, so that's the sort of thing that keeps people awake at night if, there, if there's a real hard slowdown in, in China. From a pure M&A perspective, the Chinese aren't here in huge numbers or with a huge force, at least not in recent years. So we saw um, the Shane bought by the some of the rights to the um, misguided team brand recently, but that was a relatively unusual example in, in, in recent months anyway. But obviously, from a consumer perspective, Chinese consumer is as important these days, or nearly as important perhaps as the US consumer, and in a luxury goods space, even more important. I read a report from Bain who said by 2030, Chinese consumers would be buying 40% of all luxury goods. Wow. So a hard landing there clearly would have an impact. Now, from an M&A perspective, actually, that may drive further activity but it would overall probably be damaging for the M&A market and clearly you know, difficult for the wider market. You know, having said that, personally, I don't think China will hit a hard landing. It's got so many levers to pull still. The one interesting area is, I guess, what we're talking about macroeconomics and, and politics, which we sort of are a little bit, is around what people aren't worrying about is about what's going to happen in the US election in November. And my sense is that US boardrooms have decided it's all too hard and difficult to have those conversations, frankly. And so they've decided to separate politics and economics and we'll just see what happens. But as we get further along into the year and as the US election becomes closer, we may see people rushing to get deals done before we get to election day. Because well, right now, it looks like we're running into a you know, Biden-Trump runoff and People seem very unclear as to what that's going to mean in, in all sorts of areas. Retail consumers probably not top of the list, but it will be affected like everything else will be. So that's something to see what will happen. Yeah, really interesting. And so good to hear things on like a macro level like that. Turning to the economic climate, is 2024 going to be the year when 
insolvency teams are the busiest in the city and uh, it's just a flood of distress deals, do you think? I hope not. <laughs> well, like you say pessimistic question. <laughs> well, you say that, but we know we have insolvency colleagues and there are insolvency True. teams around, <laughs> around London who've been waiting for this moment, but actually they've been waiting, frankly, since 2008 and I think they'll still be waiting. It's been the dog that hasn't barked for more than a decade. We obviously, we saw WorldCo go down into administration last year. No, that was a big deal in itself, but actually I think we'll still continue to see these, these odd ones go into insolvency, but not a huge rush of them. Because there is frankly just, I don't want to say too much money, but there is a lot of money floating around and probably a lot of it quite badly allocated. And that allows companies to survive when they perhaps otherwise wouldn't be, and it allows there to be solutions other than administration. I mean, you just need to look at, say, I think the Bitcoin price now has been going up and up back up to about $50,000. Now, you may well, with some reasons, say, well, there's no, there's no justification for whatever's going on with the Bitcoin price and you can't really analyze it. But at the same time, there is a, some sort of underlying fundamental that there must be a lot of money floating around that people are putting, feeling comfortable putting that sort of money into, into crypto still. So I think for that reason, not a lot of insolvencies this year relatively and we'll have the same same conversation again next year <laughs> this time next year <laughs> so based on everything that we've discussed here today if i was a private equity executive in the retail and consumer space would i be feeling confident on the whole about the market for 2024 yes yeah, so i've been doing private equity work for about 20 years and i've never met a private equity executive who is not confident so yes i can say Yes, you would be confident, but actually there's tons of good reasons why you would be confident. Last year was a bit slow. The banks weren't lending, or at least not lending in the same way. PE sits on so much money. I think you know, the numbers are the sort of banded around as they're, they're $2.7 trillion of so-called dry powder, which is a number so large it's effectively limitless, and the banks will lend as well. So there's plenty of firepower for them to go out and buy stuff. And there are plenty of reasons, you know, especially in the retail and consumer industry, it is driven by fashion, even outside the fashion segment. So opportunities always always come up. So yeah, I think good reasons for them to, to be optimistic. Thanks. Love that we end on a positive note. <laughs> it's nice. Let's close the episode with a fun, light little question. Nick and Sana, what's something that you've purchased recently that you love? Let's like go first. <laughs> okay, so I have one of the new Fitbits which I'm wearing right now. I know our listeners can't actually see that. <laughs> so what I like about this, it actually encourages me to move if I've been sitting for more than half an hour. So obviously sometimes I have to ignore it, but for someone who's like in quite a sedentary environment in work in the office, it's, I, I think it's really useful. So it's something I definitely recommend for people looking new year, new me, health resolutions. Yes, definitely. That's very cool. Yeah. Can you swap the straps on these ones? Yes, you can, it's customizable. Feel like I'm selling it. I'm actually not. So, <laughs> not this is not an ad. Hashtag not an ad. But um, I'm enjoying it. Yes. Yeah. What about you, Nick? Great. Well, I'll put one of those on the list. I'm very bad at buying for myself, but I bought as a, a Christmas gift uh, Anna Hindmarch handbag, which I really like the brand because, and I think the reason. I mean, it's a great British brand, and I think the reason I, I like it is it has that degree of wit about it that actually. The world's so serious and brands tend to be very serious. I mean, obviously on X slash Twitter and social media and advertising, people you know try and bring in witticisms and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and sometimes it's just a meerkat with a funny, funny voice. But I think to actually have it in the product itself, so 
this handbag was one that has kind of googly eyes on it. Like there are quite a few of them that have that motif, if that's the word I'm going for. And also it was a gift that went down very well, which was unusual for me. So I'm particularly pleased about that. I love this stuff, it's fun. It's so much fun. What about yourself? It's cold, we've had snow, and I have repurchased for about the eighth time the La Roche Posay lip balm. Yes. Not very exciting, but it really works. I love it. OG product. Mm. <laughs> All right, and that's the end of our episode. We'll be back soon with another one, and we hope to meet you there.